Amen. Amen. Um, so we are continuing a series on uh, the seven stories that shape your life. And uh, one of the things just that is so profound about being a community that believes that God meets us in prayer, answers prayer, and still works powerfully is that uh, when we invite his presence to work, it's our expectation that we get encountered and that things happen. And we don't even plan the testimonies oftentimes, but it's, it's amazing that just kind of sharing this morning, it, it's reminding me of just the dynamics that we're always trying to hold in tension. And that's being a people that fully believe that cancer can be absolved in a moment. But so can the, the condition of the heart that's been bound for 40 years. And sometimes what your, your greatest need is, is endurance, not the miraculous invasion from heaven. And I, I feel that one of the stories that, that Israel constantly is retelling in the biblical story is that we have a God that's a God of the exodus, the signs and wonders to get them out into freedom, out of slavery, to worship, but he's also the God of the exile. They were in exile over and over and over again. And in exile, you are asking the question, God, how do I worship you here? Not just how do I worship, but here in this place, in exile, how do I worship? That's the question we're looking at today. But first, some current events. Um, if you're bombarded like I am with uh, just the, the presence of all the things going on on any given week, I can get overwhelmed, like super crazy. I, are, are there others of you that when you look at the news, you just end up feeling just heavy every single day? Yes, I bless your hearts. Yeah. The, just this week, you could get overwhelmed with the fires. You could get overwhelmed with the, some of the dynamics in the Middle East. You could get overwhelmed with our president's tweets. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's constantly opportunities to get overwhelmed. Um, one thing I love about my wife, though, is that she's, she just remains continually clueless in a land of celebrity. <laughs> that sounded like I was talking about the news. She's not necessarily clueless about the news. I'm transitioning now into celebrity news. And one of my favorite things about her, that was a good save, right? Uh, one of my favorite things about her is that she is just absolutely uninterested in celebrity information. So, you're with her, amen. So, um, there's, there's this guy, um, I don't know if you know, I mentioned him earlier with Chick-fil-A, Kanye West, if he has an album and a film that's coming out this week, perhaps you've heard. Um, and um, I had to explain to her he's married to another famous person that she like vaguely was familiar with. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, her, her name, she said, is it, a, is it a, Kar a Kardashian? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yes it is, okay, it's fine. That's all she needed to know. She didn't know which one, that's overwhelming, too much detail. <laughs> so so um, I was just really, I, I, was, I was captivated this week um, with, well, I was listening to the album and just, you know, Jesus is King is the name of this album. And if you don't know Kanye's story, I mean, he's, he's, he's a billionaire R&B rap artist. I don't know what genre they technically put him in, but, but uh, he's, he's my entire lifetime. He's, he's been a very popular, very successful artist. And um, he's become a Jesus-loving Christian 
and a whole lot of controversial things around that and some of his political statements and all that. But if you could put that aside for a moment and just enjoy the entertainment factor that he went on Jimmy Kimmel and they had this kind of interview. Would you indulge me for a minute just to kind of bring us all up to speed on the late night show with Jimmy Kimmel? Okay, thank you. So he goes on Kimmel. There's a huge welcome and excitement for him coming in. The crowd is excited. See, I wasn't sure what the crowd would do if he'd get some booze or whatever. It's in Brooklyn, by the way. So maybe just getting out of L.A. helped. Um, so, so Kimmel was in Brooklyn this week, I guess. And so he, he starts this thing, and, and uh, um, <laughs> Jimmy started with this clip. He shows this clip of his daughter just dancing to, like, this gospel. Because he's been doing these things called Sunday service that the film is going to be also, I think, quasi about. I'm not sure. But so there's this, all this music that's attached, this song and singing attached, because he's obviously a music artist, to this little role that he's playing, worshiping Jesus on Sundays and developing an album and a film and all that stuff. And so Kimmel kind of like, you can tell he's maybe like trying to make a lighthearted kind of, let's talk about your fun family dancing instead of Jesus for a minute. And, and uh, he's in the middle of kind of showing that clip. And, and he goes, oh, you, you may have a little performer on your hands, Kanye. And Kanye immediately interrupts him and uses the topic to steer the interview to his uh, little agenda. And he goes, I just want to say, I love my daughter wants to go to church. I love that my daughter wants to go to church. That's how he starts. And it's outside the four walls and the pews. And, and now that God has called me and I have given my life to Jesus Christ and I work for God. And the crowd goes crazy. That's, that's his... That's his that's his first sentence to Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and then he goes, he says something like, now we have Christian innovation in our time. There was a time when the Medici family and all the greatest artists did work for the church. And now it seems that all the best designs have this adult edge to it. And I have a family. I have four children. I've been married for five years. And the perspective, because Jimmy, you asked me, a question last year, did having a daughter change my life? And I've completely turned around. Uh, that's what repentance is, by the way. He's, he's literally describing his life. I've, I've completely turned around my perspective last year to what it is now. And I feel like there's so few individuals in a position like mine to be able to give their opinion and stand up and say, this is what family is about. And I feel that God is using me and using the choir and using my family to show off. Because all these things, how many things in your life are like, this isn't in service for God, but it's your, you're going to get more out of it. This is where you're, you're going to get the better job, the better cars, and all this that they say. But we're in complete service to God. He's, he's putting the perspective in order. And the business is thriving, and the crowd goes crazy. It's very exciting. And then Jimmy interrupts him and says, do you feel born again? And he... he <laughs> And the crowd's still cheering. He asks him, do you feel born again? And the crowd's still cheering. And Kanye just kind of just waiting for it to all simmer down. And then Jimmy just has to keep asking another question and just doesn't get an answer. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian music artist now? And he goes, I'm a Christian everything. <laughs> um, anyway, and then, and then Jimmy just tries to, 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 to kind of subdue things, and he says, and it's interesting you said about your daughter, because I think you've made church fun to go to for a lot of people. And people are saying, oh, gosh, I want to go to church. And you never hear anyone saying that, really, certainly not young people. 
And you're doing this thing where you're bringing people together, and that's pretty good, I think. Anyway, there was this momentary awkward thing, and then, and then uh, they tr he tried to wrap it up, and then Kanye wanted to call out the guy that they had just highlighted with one $300 million. It was an African-American older man wearing a Gucci jacket, and he had just won $300 million or something on, on the lottery. And, and then Kanye kind of called him out, <laughs> kind of saying, like, I'm a billionaire, and I'm wearing a cheap sweatshirt. And uh, this whole thing. So he's just preaching. And I didn't know what to do with it. But I will, say, I will say one thing. I got keenly interested in his message. And the message of his album and his film is this. Jesus is King, a Kanye West film. In the words of Jesus Christ, this is how the promo for the film goes. In the words of Jesus Christ, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1.15. And he goes, we're not here to spread the gospel. I'm not here for entertainment. I'm an evangelist. So my music, my films, every conversation, every room I go in, we're here to save souls. We're here to see people, to save people from eternal damnation. Pretty intense. Okay. He's, that's how I knew he was an evangelist, because pastors don't talk like that. <laughs> and he goes, I use art to make believers then he says the verse again, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent and believe in the gospel. Wow. So what's interesting is he does use a very appropriate verse. Many people use all kinds of verses to try to summarize the gospel of Jesus. And I want us to focus on one word or phrase, and that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' entire message was, was summarized by the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is the kingdom of God to Israel was not the kingdom of God until the exile. Before the exile, the exile being, being when, particularly when they are in Babylon for 70 years. If you don't know the history of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. They get out. They get freedom. They get a promised land. And then they don't fully... They don't fully walk with God. And every time they're not walking with God, they kind of lose their inheritance. And they, come, they get kind of taken over. Um, Babylon is one of them. And in 70 years at one point, and the story of Daniel, if you've heard Daniel in the lion's den, that takes place in captivity where Daniel is working for the king. And he's one of the highest in authority of the land. In fact, Daniel outlasts three kings. And for all of them, he's kind of the guy right under the king that's running things and ruling things. And so in captivity is where the people of Israel find the phrase kingdom of God. Because before that, what do you think it might have been? The phrase that described what Israel was all about. It was the kingdom of Israel. What they learned in captivity was that their dreams were too small. Their dreams were all about Israel, Jerusalem, and this promised land for them. And what God taught them in exile was that your dreams need to include the entire earth, my entire creation, all the people that are far from me. I want them too. And until you understand that, you will not understand who you are. It's my kingdom. It's all my kingdom. It's the kingdom of God that you're after, not the kingdom of Israel. And so Jesus comes on the stage, and he's using Daniel's language. Kingdom of God, not kingdom of Israel. They keep looking for Israel, that king of Israel, because in that point, they're overtaken by by Caesar and the Romans and so forth. Um, but here's what, here's what I, I want to point out, a couple of verses. 
Did I even tie that back into the message? I hope I did. Yeah, I'm rolling now. <laughs> if you get into the Psalms, it's, it's interesting to me, and I just want to point out, um, the stream that we're part of, kind of the whatever this charismatic stream is of culture, we tend to focus a lot on the exodus, the power of God and his presence leading us and guiding us. And that's good, for good reason. That changed my life because I hadn't really understood the extent to which the presence of God is the anchor of all that we do and what we're led by and what we gather around. The people in the, in the wilderness learned that. At the same time, the exile, I had also, I feel like, been a bit deprived of the goodness of the exile. And as we've been talking about worship, it's still, we're still on worship because all of Israel and all of God's people from them until now, the issue is always about worship. And what Israel learns in exile is a question. And it starts, if you, if you even look at the Psalms, you see tensions in the Psalms. Many of our songs that we sing about now, we sing about the victory of God and what he's already done in Jesus, and I love every single one of those songs. We need to sing them. They're beautiful. They're necessary. They're right. But we also need the songs that walk us through the tension of unanswered questions that walk us through the tensions of what do we do when we don't have the breakthrough? Uh, that song that they sing, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. That song was written, it's a Bethel worship song. Uh, Jonathan Helser wrote that song when they had uh, uh, one of the staff for Bethel Music, I believe, his, his son was about to die. And in the middle of the night, he woke up, wrote this song as an anthem of praise in the middle of the storm. And they sang that over him until they got breakthrough. But the song is powerful because of where the song is positioned. Yeah, they got breakthrough and the miracle for that little boy that was supposed to die. But the song isn't about getting the miracle. The song is about what you do in the middle of the storm if you don't get the miracle. We have to be the people that do not change the subject about who God is based on the result. When we learn to worship in the middle of the storm, on this side of the breakthrough, we will start to see breakthroughs, but not because our worship is conditional, but because our worship is sacrificial, but because our worship places us, our posture, back on who God is, not back into slavery that we don't worship a good God unless we get what we want. God cares much more about who we become than what our circumstances are of the day. The exile teaches us that. And so the Psalms are songs that do a beautiful job of this. And when you don't have a song to sing in the middle of a storm, you need to be singing the Psalms. Psalm 23 says, when you pass through the valley... Meaning, you have to assume that you're going to have valleys and you're going to be passing through them. I think the issue we often have is we either camp out in the valley or we ignore the valley. We need to go through the valley. And it's better when you go through together. Psalm 68, when you walk through the valley of weeping. This is talking about like a pilgrimage and, and passing through this place of weeping. It doesn't ignore the fact that life has a place in valleys of weeping. But the assumption is you understand that when you're passing through something of a valley, you don't stay there. But I think we're equally foolish to ignore the fact that life has them. We're not meant to live in the valleys, but we're also not meant to ignore them. And in Psalm 137, if you're going to turn to a psalm, go there because we're going to read it. 
Psalm 137 says this. And it's talking about this exile of Babylon. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. What does that mean? They're in Babylon, in captivity, and Zion represents Israel, their land, their purpose, their kingdom. And we're weeping because we're remembering what we're supposed to have, and we don't have it. We're stuck here in Babylon. And on the willow trees there, we hung up our lyres. We hung up our musical instruments that gave us the worship for the songs that we sing. For there our captives required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. In other words, they're hanging up their musical instruments because their tormentors, the people of Babylon, are making fun of them, saying, sing us one of your songs of Israel. Yeah, sing us one of those songs that talk all about your temple and your holy city, Jerusalem, that you don't live in, and all these promises of your God that aren't true. And verse 4 says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What are they asking? They know they're a people of worship. Their identity is they were supposed to come out out of slavery to worship. So they're asking, song, they're asking questions of God about their worship. They've got their instruments in their hand, their weapons and they don't know what to do with them. Why? Because they don't have any songs for exile. They've got songs of victory. they got songs of coming out of the promised land. But they don't have any songs for the valley. They don't have any songs for the exile. They don't have any songs for weeping. They don't have any songs for when we don't have an answer. They don't have any songs for when the enemy is whispering, sing us those songs of your promise and victory. How many of us live in that reality constantly where we've got the accuser whispering in our ear, sing us that song of that dream that you had to do this and that. Sing us that song of that perfect marriage. Sing us that song of that life that you thought you were going to have. Sing us that song. Sing us that song of those promises. And you're sitting there in the valley going, I don't have a song. I, I can't believe how perfect Helen's testimony was. I didn't because what happens when you feel distant from God and everything in life, it, you don't, you don't want to worship. You don't know how, even if you want to. And so Israel's question to God is, isn't even like, in, even this psalm, this song, because all the psalms are songs, it's about how, how do we have a song here? How do we have a song in exile How do we worship in exile? But you can read that statement, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You can read it two ways. And the way you read it will determine what you do with it. Are you ready for those two ways? First way. By the way, if you want to read a great book on this, that he highlights all this stuff, Gerard Kelly, who we went to in, with, in our retreat in France, it's called The Seven Stories. Um, we'll post that online. It's an amazing book, amazing stuff. So a lot of this is inspiration from our time in France. The question we read two ways. One, we can read it like a statement. How can we sing the Lord's praise? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We can't. We just can't do it. So we're putting up our instruments. We can't do it. What if you instead read it as an invitation? What if you read it as, 
I need to sing a song. God, give me a song. And I think that's what the people were meant. This psalm is meant to be an invitation to sing in the middle of exile. It's not to be an excuse. Because if it's an invitation, it's actually quite exciting. If it's an invitation, all of a sudden, all of you, and myself included, actually have something of interest. Because if it doesn't have an invitation attached, then what's the point? Because then the point is, you can't sing in exile. Just wait. And I think the posture of much of the church has been, we're waiting for the kingdom to come in fullness. And so when we're in the valleys, we're just waiting on God. And our posture is defeated. And everything gets blamed outside our realm of responsibility. And most of the time, we've got good reason, right? Because I've done all the things. I didn't get the job breakthrough, because I've, I, but I've done all the interviews. I've put my resume out there. I've moved cities. I've done all this. I've done everything. So God, where are you? And what being a people of God means isn't have you done everything right. It's have you worshipped in the midst of your questions. Have you found your song here, now, in exile? What's your song? One of the most powerful things I've ever experienced is watching people worship in the midst of unbelief, conflict, and adverse circumstances. So Israel has no songs. They're under accusation of the enemy. I remember when I was, we were in Chicago for eight years, and we had a great time there. It was a beautiful season. We had our children there. We had amazing friends there, an amazing church there. We went to seminary there. And yet we were figuring out our calling, our destiny, that eventually was wrapped up in coming here and planting this church. And at the same time, my identity isn't a church and planting a church and doing something for God. And so my, my biggest struggle was in the midst of a season where I didn't understand. I'm still working in a scenario there in Chicago for many years where I don't understand what God is doing and how he's lining it up. And it's, some things were good. A lot of things I had huge questions on. I wasn't offended at God, but I was asking all kinds of questions like, what else do I do? What do we do for breakthrough? Do I have issues I haven't seen God? Are we ever going to get to the place of living out our dreams? And I realized the place he kept bringing me back to, he wasn't answering my questions. The question was always, how am I going to worship him here? Every single time. Every single time. It's how am I going to worship you here? What am I going to do with the accusations? And the issue, oftentimes when you're not getting the breakthrough for your dreams, is because your dream is too small. My dream was to continue serving. For, my, for our situation, for Sue and I, it, our dream was to serve that church, go on staff, do missional things out of that church, and hopefully have some kind of training center that we could be a part of and live in Chicago the rest of our days. I know, crazy in that God-forsaken place. <laughs> I thought I was becoming holier living in that environment of the Arctic. And then I just realized that there was a promised land. No, uh, so the, the reality was is we were in that posture. I, I thought we had perfectly fine dreams. 
Ultimately, the Lord revealed our dream is too small. And he was setting us up for what eventually became us coming out here, stepping into way bigger risk, way bigger faith, way bigger dreams that we hadn't even dreamed up. And this is, this is just the, the beginning of those dreams starting to take root because we didn't get offended, because we kept worshiping, not perfectly, by the way. Don't let the enemy accuse you that you have to be perfect, worship perfect, and not get offended for you to survive your valley. You don't. You can screw up your whole valley. In fact, you can be there for way longer than you were supposed to be, and that's still okay. He wants to get you out of the valley and get you through the valley, but he wants to develop you in it and not waste it. And what we discovered was that God is always on a divine setup and that our exile, that in perspective seems so minuscule comparative to Israel and so many other people on the earth, but it was still our exile because we didn't know what to do there. And ultimately the message was your dream is too small. Israel's dream was too small. They had a dream for the kingdom of Israel and they were supposed to have an entire dream for the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of God, of all of creation coming under the rule and the reign of the majesty of God himself. Maybe your dream is too small. So Jesus had two phrases. We've, we've talked about the kingdom of God. He also had this phrase, son of man. So Jesus was son of God, but he's also son of man, right? He had, he's divine. He's born of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit into the Virgin Mary. So we know he's son of God, but we oftentimes don't emphasize the fact that he's also son of man, which means what? He's fully God and fully man, meaning that everything he did was as a man in right relationship with the Father by the Holy Spirit. This was prophesied first in Daniel, in exile. And Daniel says in exile, in a vision, in a dream, that there would be one, Daniel 7, 13, like a son of man coming through the clouds of heaven. There's a longer thing. I could read it all if you want to go to it in Daniel 7. It's right there. It's all about prophesying this person called the son of man named Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he picks up on kingdom of God. He picks up on I'm son of man. And he oftentimes, when he's revealing his purposes in the earth, he refers to himself with a title that's meant to take Israel back to the prophets. In this case, Daniel. What did you learn in exile? Your dream is too small. Jesus is going around talking about the kingdom of God, trying to convince first the people of Israel that they missed the dream and they need a bigger dream. He takes men who have no dreams and he gives them dreams. People that didn't have it figured out and completely recalibrates their purposes, destinies, and assignments. And so Daniel is super important because Daniel, the book of Daniel, as a prophetic voice, Daniel is all about dreams and visions. And we, we hear about the lion's den story, and then we miss out the whole rest of the book. The whole rest of the book is this man who lived his whole life in exile from a young boy coming over in, in Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all these guys that eat vegetables only and impress the king, and they're all healthy and fit and good-looking. By the time he gets to the lion's den, he's a wrinkly old man in his 80s, and he's outlasted several kings. But he's been this prophetic voice that's been high-level authority in this kingdom that's not his. And then he's also been this guy who keeps having dreams and visions and interpreting other people's dreams and visions. And one of his visions is this. He talks about this, this little kingdom. 
Yes, Babylon, he saw, was swallowed up. It swallowed up Jerusalem, Babylon did. But I saw another gang swallowing up Babylon, and another one, and another one, and another one. And then at the end, Daniel sees this little kingdom that looked like nothing, and it destroyed them all, and it will last forever. That's Daniel's message. The entire book of Daniel is about this dream of a kingdom that will swallow up their exile oppressors, and it will last forever and ever and ever. And it's a different kind of kingdom. It's not about Jerusalem. And yet he faces Jerusalem three times a day to pray, to position himself towards what Jerusalem represents. And what does Jerusalem represent? It represents the king on the throne for all the nations to come and worship the one true God that wants to reveal himself to them and have them worship, not false gods, not things that are going to draw them away and cause them heartache and war and peace, tranquility, and a kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. That's the vision, and that's what he faces towards three, day, three times a day. That is how Daniel survives the exile, is by positioning himself in worship and prayer towards Jerusalem and saying, I will keep this present. Because Israel had another lie that they were believing, and that was that the presence of God, that thing that took them out of the, the wilderness into Egypt, out of slavery, and that they followed, and it had all these signs and wonders, miracles, and power. They believed that the presence of God was just a place, a thing. It, like, it existed only in like a, a tabernacle, only in Jerusalem, only in the Ark of the Covenant, whatever it was. And so what they ended up completely missing was that the presence was with them wherever they went. God himself, excuse me, God himself was present. Meaning that as he prayed towards Jerusalem, he's got God with us because he's anchored towards something. So if you want to uproot something, you still, you still have to understand that God, God is there. He's present. But if you, if you believe that it's just at a place, at a location, then all of a sudden you get uprooted and you're in exile, your entire frame of reference is, is that that presence of God is over there, and I, I got to get back there. And what God is trying to show them is that no kingdom is going to tell God where his presence is. And that the lesson is, is that my presence is superior to kingdoms. And that this little bitty kingdom that you can't even see, it'll swallow up these kingdoms if you'll let it. If you'll learn in exile how to worship me in the midst of your questions. And then the exile is never fully resolved in Scripture. It's not resolved in Daniel. It's not resolved in Jesus. Jesus has a finished work. He conquers sin, death, and the grave. But he never fully works out this concept of exile because this all happens in the midst of another oppressive regime. The kingdom of God, and even how Jesus comes in and talks about the kingdom, the imagery that all of Israel and all his followers are getting is this concept that Caesar establishes. When Caesar goes to another area, he has his apostles 
go before him and set up everything in that kingdom. So in Judea, where they lived, he set up everything with all the Roman baths, the Roman education system, the Roman roads, the, the Roman structures, the Roman way of life, the Roman culture, all to look like Rome, so that if Caesar would come to Judea, he would feel at home. And when Jesus talks about this kingdom and his father, He's using imagery and a metaphor that they would understand. And when he prays, kingdom of God come, will of God be done on earth as in heaven. He's saying the rule and the reign of heaven come on earth like that. My apostles, go and bring the culture of heaven on earth so that if a father came, he'd feel at home. And they have free access and free reign and no boundaries beyond themselves to go and live out that mission with that commissioning. That's the mission. Walter Brueggemann says this, Exile did not leave Jews in the Old Testament to abandon faith or settle for abdicating despair or retreat to some kind of private religion. On the contrary, what the exile did was it evoked the most brilliant literature and the most daring theological articulation in the entire Old Testament. So what can the exile do for us? We start to wrap this up. Sometimes our, our little dreams need to be squashed, need to be smashed, need to be completely blown apart so that he can show us the greater things. And so there's lessons in the exile. I think I'm just going to jump into that. There's five lessons of this exile concept that I want us to get. The first is this. Nothing that happens to me changes who God is. The first lesson of the exile is nothing that happens to me changes who God is. We oftentimes believe that what happens to us, and even if we don't say it, your circumstances, your life history has given you an incredible lens about defining who God is. And the reality is, is that nothing that happens to you actually changes who he is. That's why we proclaim the goodness of God. God is good. God is good all the time. And, and many of us have been influenced by streams like Bethel or whatever else that contend for this concept of God's goodness. Why? Everyone is okay with saying God is good. But we're not willing to say God is good, or we don't know how to say that he's good when we don't get the breakthrough, when the child dies, when the loved one's cancer doesn't get healed, when we don't get the job for the 50,000th time. We don't know what does that mean about God's goodness when we don't get the breakthrough. And what we learn in the exile isn't that the answer that we want. We never get the answer that we want in the exile. In the exile, we understand that we go back to who God is. And what we learn is, is the exile didn't change who God is. My circumstances in Chicago didn't change who God is. Who God is. Your circumstances last year that was a great year for some of you didn't, didn't change who he was, and those that had the worst year of their life didn't change who God is. And when we live with an awareness of his goodness, then all of a sudden, when something happens that contradicts God's goodness, we can say, no, I don't have the answer, but I know he's good. When we learn to live in the tension of God's goodness, despite the realities that things come at us that speak otherwise, sing us that song now about your good God. 
Sing us that song now. Our job is to find songs to sing. The answer is to sing the songs. The answer isn't to make up answers. The church has done a really good job of making up really pathetic answers. And when we make up answers, people leave the church. What if our answer was to show them how to worship when they have no answers? Because when you worship, the presence of God is able to be present as it already is because it never left. Your attuneness to his presence is the issue. Daniel didn't face Jerusalem because there was magic powers in facing it. He faced it for himself so that he would remember God's presence is here with him there in Babylon in exile. That was the dream. Here was the presence. If we learn that our dreams are meant to focus us in on a type of worship that can worship in all circumstances, we will understand the heart of God and we will understand how to worship in the midst of the exile. That's number one. Number two, there is nowhere God can't go. His presence is already there. I've kind of already summed that up. The concept of Adam, where are you? That creation question, where are you? That picture in these seven stories is meant to go before us because God is looking for you. You didn't lose him. We're not looking for the presence. The presence is already there. There is nowhere you can go on this green earth or brown earth that is not a place that God's presence is not already dwelling. Therefore, as a follower of King Jesus, what your assignment is, is to pick up on the reality that the creator's presence is already here and that you have been designed in his image, to carry it and to release it and to not live under the lie that he doesn't want to look at you. It's that man doesn't want him to look at us because of our shame. He is looking for you. And he's looking for me. So what happens when we fast and pray and worship? We're doing some things to our body. We're we're telling our body to make a choice and that we're dedicating our body to a direction. It's significant. I'd like to invite you into a a, a season of trying to navigate. What are the things I need to do with my body, mind, soul, and spirit to position myself back towards the God that I can worship in the midst of my questions? Because we have this concept that nowhere you can go where God isn't already there. Because here's what happens. You can have despair or you can have exile. Despair says this, number one. Despair says, I can't find God here. Here's nowhere to be found. I can't find God. Don't you feel that at times? I feel it. When I have despair, I feel like it's, God's not here. I can't find him. It's a legitimate emotion. We need to stop ignoring that we're feeling it. What exile teaches you is that in my spirit, I'm not going to be in despair because I know that God is here and he's looking for me and he's not lost, I am. When you make that decision in your spirit, all of a sudden who God is is completely different. You you have to know this deep in your soul. This isn't something that you develop just with intellectual knowledge. And that's what worship does to you. 
It's an exchange. You can't worship something without experiencing the depths of your soul attached to it. So prayer and worship then. uh, Sorry, that was number four. Before that, number three. That was number two. Know where you can go where God isn't there. Number three, we want to live our dreams, and God is more concerned that we actually have a dream. I think human history tells us that history is made by those who know how to dream, release their dreams, and invite others into it. Daniel, Daniel released dreams and visions over a people. He didn't release an army. He didn't release a breakthrough. He spent his whole life sharing dreams and recalibrating towards the dream. Jesus also shared a dream. It was the dream of the kingdom. Every story he told, every little parable, the kingdom of God is like this. It's an extension of the story of Israel, of God trying to show them what heaven on earth looks like and how they can be a part. Every single time, Jesus never lived out that dream. And I've shared this before. The reason why Martin Luther King continues to be perhaps the most significant character in modern U.S. history is because he had a dream, not a plan. People latched hold of that dream before it was a reality. And the reality is being lived out. And whether he got assassinated or not, he never would have lived out the fullness of the dream. And even still, we're tying back into the breakthroughs that we need in a society that needs healing. And the dream is still before us. We've seen it in part, but it's not in fullness. But no one is sitting here going, why don't we just wait for Jesus to return, for Martin Luther King's dream to be committed and done and finished? No, we're like, that's a dream worth living for here and now. And Jesus' dream is meant to do the same thing. His dream was meant for us to say, what's possible now, here, in our time? And we're meant to be the people that start to give glimpses of what that looks like. That's the beautiful invitation of the dream. So prayer, then, number four, is orientation, not location. It's the posture and where you point yourself, the position, not the location. Because you can be in your exile, far from home, nowhere close to the place that you think you can live out your dreams. And prayer and worship is the place that you go that orientates you, that positions you, that postures you, not the place of location. Prayer and worship is orientation, not location. Songs arise in your soul in exile that is deeper than the song that arises in your soul from victory. Your songs that you sing that come out of your soul from the exile will be so much more valuable to you than the songs that come out of your victories. I want to encourage this house, our worship team, write those songs. But I want to encourage each of you, don't depend on the worship team. Write your own songs. And number five, exile tells the story of what really matters. It's the place we learn the story of exile to raise a hallelujah, and it's the place we learn to open a window. In this place, it's how you engage in the deepest places of God and release the hope that the world craves. The world is craving for this kind of hope. The world is craving for followers of Jesus to open a window and show them how to position themselves and what to pray towards in the midst of questions. So how do we apply this? Worship team can come up and uh, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Three things to apply this. <clears throat> Number one. <laughs> I don't know, that, that's some kind of image that I need to take a picture of. It's beautiful. Well done. 
Exile, number one. Three things to apply this. Exile and trials. They changed what Israel actually longed for. How can we sing here? It's an invitation, and he's inviting you to do the same. What area of your life longs to sing for an answer? What area of your life longs to sing for an answer? Bring that to the Lord as we respond. Second, change your position. Open a window. Where's the dream of Jerusalem that you need to pray towards, that you need to worship towards, towards God's purposes over your life? And third, make a declaration. Make a declaration of God's goodness. Why? Because nothing that happens to me changes who he is. Declare that he's good. Why don't you stand?